another episode of Morelia Python Radio. Tonight, we are talking blood pythons, short-tailed pythons, uh, with Matt Turner. Uh, should be a good show. I am rushing right in to do the show from moving uh, for the past couple days. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been... Uh, it's been quite a go, 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 go uh, experience for sure. Um, and I can't wait to be settled in and be done. Um, snakes haven't moved yet. Uh, they're still at mobile place. And um, probably maybe in the next day or two, I'll start moving them over. Um, <laughs> I was I was telling you before the show, I had, uh, I had an interesting conversation with my neighbor. She, uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> she comes up to me and, she, you know, she introduces herself and, you know, we're talking and, uh, apparently the, the, uh, people that owned the house before we did, didn't really take care of the grounds all too well. And, um, right. She's saying, you know, she, we're going back and forth and she's talking about weeds and stuff like that. And I asked her about the, the back, you know, the back area and you know, what's going on with that. And, uh, she said, somehow she says, Oh yeah, we have snakes. And I was like, Oh yeah, I have snakes. Too, and, and oh, so you're like, like I have snake, I have snake too. <laughs> yeah, it's like you were halfway through saying snakes, and then you thought, no, one, I have snakes <laughs> too. So yeah, it's like your brain stopped you. Yeah. So so I wasn't sure. Like I thought, oh well, that's cool. She must have like a pet ball python or something. But no, she was talking about the snakes in the yard. She's like, no, we have snakes in the yard. And I was like, Ew. oh, yeah, I have a pet snake. <laughs> I, I, I figure I wait till I get uh, a little more comfortable with them before before I start. Uh, I have a snake. I have a hundred snakes. That is the actual <laughs> thing that was, that would be the truthful part. But yeah. one, a yeah. hundred, what's the difference? <laughs> what's the difference? It's fine. So I, I can see where you kind of, I know a lot of people are a little gun shy about letting the uh, neighbors and the rest of the town know, you know, that the snakes are here. Yeah. All that other fun stuff. I I hate it because my electrical box is through my snake room. So every time I have work done at the house, everybody, all the repair guys who need to do electrical stuff wander through. And they immediately, like, come in the room. They tweak out for a minute. I'm like, will you please just do the work that I'm paying you to do, and then you can leave. They're all locked up, I promise. And it's like, okay. So... That's why I just keep hiring uh, people who either have snakes or who are relatives of my friends who have snakes or <laughs> have known me forever to do the work right. in my house because, you know, it's not a surprise and they'll just do it and keep going. So Right, right. Yep. So I, I don't but, know anything that's going on or anything of the sort. <laughs> I have no idea what's what's happening in the world of the culture. Facebook. Yeah, it's been a dull week. So, but I can tell you, or I can tell the, the listeners that I actually went and saw your place. Matt and I were wandering around the the new EB Morelia headquarters and uh, <laughs> assessing yeah. assessing the situation. And uh, the problem is, is that your wife is giving you free reign over the downstairs and the garage, which consists of like three rooms. So, yep. I mean, if she had been following, like, the three of us wandering around, like, I, we're all of a sudden we're like, you, you can have three snake rooms. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can totally do this. Yeah. It's like, you know, there was, no, there was no voice of reason between the three of us to be like, 
Well, if we could just rip out this wall, you could have one really big snake room. You know what? That's a great idea. Yes, it is. More room for snakes. Great. So yes. it was like that. So, but your your guy's house is very nice. It's uh, you've got a lot of room to expand and a way to make a really really cool snake room. Um, I was blown away by your steel table that you just had in the front. Like if I had a truck, I would have just <laughs> not visited you. Uh, <laughs> thrown the table into the truck and drove off and yeah. you know been like texted you as I'm down the road sorry I can't make it so you know but uh, obviously you got the pool area you got all this other stuff that we're walking around checking out um, but yeah it, it's a very nice place cool thank you yeah it's mm-hmm. uh <clears throat> I got uh, many projects to uh, to undertake in that place but uh, it'll and yeah. I got what? Till June you, to you do, do it for carpet fest? You have a timetable. Time <laughs> time it's like the entire time I'm walking around, you're pointing out more and more projects. I'm like, yep, yep, yep. Carpet fest is in June. <laughs> so it's like yeah. the entire yeah. time you're talking, I'm like, get to work because carpet fest is in June. I'll even help you. Carpet fest is in June and it will be here. So, yeah, um, yeah that's a thing. But, I mean, other than that, uh, a lot of room for dachshunds. You know, I think you just got to make sure that you guys stay at two dachshunds and you don't let, you know, don't go crazy on the dachshund front. No, no. Two dogs is enough for me, man. <laughs> That's enough. They're not like snakes. <laughs> you know They're what I mean? They're not like snakes. They can't just yeah. have unlimited numbers. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. So. Yeah. so, uh yeah. So, okay. Well, we'll get right into it. But uh Matt Turner, for um people that don't know, um Matt Turner uh is uh his his business is Selective Origins. Um he has he's currently working with uh Bloods and uh I think it's I think he's just focused on Bloods. Um but um you have all you Morelia people out there, uh jungle carpet people have heard of the line the Turner line jungles. Well, we'll we'll dab on that a little bit. Um, but, uh, and I know, I, I'm pretty sure that, uh, Matt also worked with, uh, Blackheads. I remember reading a Reptiles, uh, art, Reptiles Magazine article. This is a while back. And I thought it was Blackheads. Back when that thing was relevant. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> when it was relevant. Ouch. <laughs> I, so, I'd say what we're all thinking. Yeah. So, there you go. <laughs> um, so I guess uh, let's let's get it going. So let's get Matt on here and get it going. Hey Matt, welcome to Morelia Python Radio. Glad to have you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Sure, um, Matt. Why don't you just kind of give us a little thing of you know? We usually ask everybody what what got you started in reptiles. Like what what was your starting point? Yeah, I kind of um, came into reptiles. My family really. I've, my my father was really involved, and I was a pretty avid field herper, and uh, so I don't really ever remember a time when reptiles weren't in my life. Um, as far as captive reptiles, I started. I got a pair of corn snakes when I was twelve, and uh, <laughs> bred them that year, and I've had a clutch of eggs hatch ever since. So huh. that was pretty much huh. it. <laughs> and, and here I'm thinking I'm cool for like eight years. You're like, oh, since I was twelve, a clutch a year. I'm like, oh. Shit. So that's awesome. Well, it's just a household so, I grew up in. No, that's awesome. 
so is it just kind of Collier Bridge for a little bit and then slowly leading into the bigger guys? Yeah, I think um, I think right away I knew that I wanted to work with other stuff. So we had a lot of kings and corns and all of that kind of stuff. And by the time um, I had gotten into my teens, I was trying to save money to buy pythons of various types and, and kind of got into it from there and then branched out a little bit into snakes or uh, excuse me into lizards and tortoises and turtles and, and that stuff and just kind of been going ever since awesome so out of working with i mean you worked with all these different types of animals mm-hmm. what kind of led you to short tail pythons i mean like what what kind of drew you into them well they're one of the first pythons that I I got I got my first one in uh, in '95 and um, they um, their care just their their size their temperament their attitude their all those kinds of traits really kind of drew me towards them and then as I got older and started really seeing the natural variation that exists in the species I thought that that was fascinating and um, everybody you know I've always been drawn to uh, to reds and to bright colors, and uh, and that was a, a great way to go. So that's kind of where I'm at now, just kind of focused on them. Very cool. So uh, was it just the color, or was it kind of like, because it, it, it's almost like they have a little bit more of an attitude or a different kind of body structure. Anything like that kind of draw you into them too? Yeah, the body structure is, is very unique. It's very fossorial kind of um, – a terrestrial type of snake and they're very explosive and short burst and uh their their hunting mechanism or the hunting style that they undertake is very interesting they just kind of hide very quietly and then explode as we see in some other uh types of snakes like that and uh their attitude is different they um they're very curious. They have a they have a bad reputation for being aggressive, and and sometimes that was true, especially in the early days when uh, we were getting a lot of wild caught bloods in. But uh, a lot of that is uh, is sort of ill received. They uh, they can have a quite mm-hmm. personable attitude, just like anything else. It's like you know the first carpet pythons like to bite a lot too. They've calmed down a lot, considerably compared yeah. to. Yeah. Um, so, being that you just mentioned carpet pythons and that this is Moralia Python Radio, uh, can you kind of go into uh, your line of jungle carpets? Like, what's the backstory on those guys and kind of where they came from and what led you to kind of work with those guys? Sure. Yeah. The um, Well, you know, I don't, I don't really think it's my line. It's just projects that I had started working on that sort of evolved and uh, are are continuing to do so with, you know, really talented breeders. And uh, I think what I did was I just decided I wanted a certain look. I wanted to, Mm -hmm. you know, I think all of us maybe saw the Pythons of the World cover back in the day, and uh, we saw that image of the jungle, and that was great, and that's kind of what I went for. And, uh, you know, back then I didn't realize how much selective breeding could further that, could further that viewpoint of that yellow and black, that contrast, um, that structure, uh, you know, just those kinds of traits again. So essentially what I did was I just uh, started buying lots and lots and lots of jungles and uh, raising them up. And uh, 
I bought clutches from from Lasik and Sipperly and Hampers and BPI um, and all those, and just kind of kept the very best that I liked and started focusing on on line breeding, um, trying to keep my um, my lineages as pure as possible and as colorful as possible, and just worked that project for you know I think uh, about 18 years or so, and. Uh, and then after a while, I started getting the results. I started uh, really enjoying, and that's what I did until I kind of felt like I was done with that project. So I moved on to something else and worked with a lot of other Australian pythons during that time and um, was really interested in the Aspidites and uh, some groups like that and scrubs and all that kind of stuff and white lip pythons and all these mm-hmm. wonderful snakes. But... Um, uh, yeah, so I, I'm not sure that it is a, a line that I would say, you know, I, I see my name attached to it, but really I just put things together from other very talented breeders and really developed it that way. When, yeah. Hey, Matt, when you see the jungles today, um, mm-hmm. did do you, did you ever think that that's was what the goal would be? Did did it? surpass your expectations yeah i well the consistency has improved so much and um, when i started breeding jungles early on those ones that were just the cream of the crop just the very special ones there was you know like one every couple of clutches that you would get you just get something really unique you know really nice right and now just through line breeding i think the consistency has gone up so that now breeding these really really nice adults you have a a really good chance of producing some really screamer animals and and a good number of them so um the consistency has changed a lot um the level of intensity of the color is really what i wanted what i wanted to see you know in a lot of those projects and um and then if i was still working with it i would be more focused now on refinement you know, on cleaning up and and trying to get looks that were maybe even making even improving the quality of the black instead of the yellow. Right. So we worked with the yellow for so long. Now maybe we need to look at this uh, this dark, deep black and see what we can do with that. Right. I'm um, I'm always curious with guys that um, have been doing it for a while and have moved from you know one species to the next. Do you ever are you ever tempted to 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 get back into say jungles or uh, you know, Aspidites or something like that? Um, not really. I I think when I, my goal with the, any project that we take on is to do it to what we feel is our completion, just what we can, the most that we can do with it. And while okay. that can be improved on by others, once I'm done, I'm done. And I want to do something else. Um, like the jungles and the, the blackheads and the walmas and everything else, I tend to focus on a few projects, but big groups of them. I think that I see better results with a lot of diversity and a lot of uh, good genes floating around. And and on that end, it's more of a collection. You know, it's like a collection of jungle carpets that I happen to breed. Um, right. So once I'm once I'm done and and I decide that I'm done, I usually just kind of, you know, move along, do something else. Cool. Okay. So what size collection are you working with today? 
Um, it's actually as small as it's been in, in years. I just, my kids are getting older and, uh, I've got tons of stuff going on in life. And, uh, mm. so, you know, uh, that whole thing, I've got, uh, maybe a hundred snakes and that's about it. I have a, I have a lot of turtles and tortoises and things like that, but, uh, I can't keep the numbers that, you know, we used to in the past at the level of care that I would like them to be at. So I have to right. manage it based on time. So we're at any point about a hundred, and that's including, you know, holdbacks and stuff we're raising up, and as well as the breeders and all that kind of stuff. Hundred is still a pretty big number to some people, but you know, I guess if you were keeping, uh, I mean, what was your collection at its largest? Do you, do um, you, do you know the number? Or you kind of you just I'm gonna guess around four hundred, probably. <sighs> So that was, uh, and that was just too much. Um, yeah. We had two people that worked with us. That, um, and then when you get into like hiring other people and that whole thing, that uh, that can become kind of stressful too. And um, you know, when it comes down to it, just nobody really does it the way that you want it done. So mm-hmm. it's easier for me to just, you know, I, I think all of us have to do kind of a dedication of our weekends if we undertake <laughs> this hobby. It's a uh, you know, and it's so you work during the week, you come home and you uh you deal with some cages, but then the weekends I spend a lot of time and I just need to be able to, you know, do a lot of other things. So I've kinda of limited down and I expect to my goal is in the next five years to be at half of that, be at like fifty snakes. But very, okay. very select projects. So that with that being said, do you just work with blood pythons or do you have uh, or do you also have Borneos and Sumatrans? I have a small group of Borneos and Sumatrans. Um, I love them. I think they're super interesting and cool snakes to work with. But my heart is really into the into the Red Bloods and the Brongers Mai. And um, the uh, I have the Sumatrans, the, the Carmel albinos, and we have a lot of different uh, various Borneo projects going on. Um, but uh, that's probably the smaller end. Uh, then we uh, we have no other no other Python or Colubrid projects right now, um, just the Bloods. So we focused on uh-huh. that. Okay, and then you said you have tortoises and turtles, and do you have any yeah. like unique tortoises or is uh, or turtles? Yeah, we we keep all the we enjoy the Madagascan stuff, so we have a lot of um, we have some radiated tortoises, and we have uh, various stars and. Yeah, stuff like that. Um, actually, I was digging up a clutch, hoping I was going to make it in here to get on the phone. That's what I was doing right <laughs> before we we got on the phone here. But uh, sweet. Uh, yeah, that's a that's kind of a labor of love. You know, it's a it's a very slow, slow process of raising tortoises up and and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, that's and digging up their eggs. I mean, yeah, they don't just yeah. leave them for you. It's like you gotta go find them. Yeah. Wow. Well. That's harder than that we have raccoons that dig them up for me if I don't. So, oh, got to do that. Oh, that's yeah, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> that would piss me off. <laughs> like come out. Yes, it does. I've been waiting yeah, for this uh, one breeding project, and the raccoons have gotten the egg. Oh, I mm, there'd be dead raccoons. It so <laughs> it does unfortunately happen where we're at. We have a lot of you know woodlands around our house, and uh, mm. from time to time we'll have. Uh, a couple of things sneak in. It's usually raccoons, sometimes a possum, and um, 
you know, if we miss a clutch, they help themselves. It seems they're they're pretty good at finding them. <laughs> uh, <nice. laughs> wow. Um, so you okay? So you work with uh, the three species. Do you find one uh, easier to work with than the other? Um, to a degree, but I don't know that it's you know anything anybody sees but me. It's one of those like a personal kind of things. I think that the uh, mm. the the red bloods they tend for me anyway. They tend to uh, tame quicker and be calmer and uh, you know maybe maybe slightly less of a of mess when uh, when the mess happens. Uh, the Borneos gotcha. they're kind of the, the Borneos for us. Every time we hatch them, they're so springy. They're just like little corkscrews out of the you know popping at you. And, uh, <laughs> And that's fine, but uh, I, I like the size, I like the sturdiness, and I like the color on the reds the best. Okay. Um, when you're working with um, just that, the, you know, that group of species, do you find it easier, um, you know, as far as keeping your room uh, certain temperatures and stuff like that as opposed to working with a multitude of species? Absolutely. That's And that's yeah. why we do it the way that we do. When... Um, you know, when we were set up for, for jungles, the room was designed for jungles. And when I'm set up for Aspidites, the room is designed for Aspidites. And the same thing with the bloods. Uh, we just changed protocol to to fit that or to fit species within that range of uh, of needs so that it kind of streamlines what we're doing. And uh, I think that contributes to success uh, across the board, and I think that, uh, that it helps me to focus more on what I'm trying to do. If okay. I have a when I had a big collection, my mind would just, you know, you're you're so trying to think of what the next step is with the ver- with the various projects that um it was a bit overwhelming. And that right. was like, you know, that's what you walk around thinking about. You're walking around the street <laughs> doing something at work and all you can think about is the snakes and what projects you're doing, you know, and uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh you guys know how that is, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> So to, to to help with sort of my take on that, I have to. It's better for me to be hyper focused on one thing. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so let's let's approach it this way. So as far as your room, um, mm-hmm. do you use like a space heater, or you just use an ambient temperatures for your room, and and that's relating to bloods. Um. Right. Yeah. Uh, so at the we have a uh, a building that we use here and uh, on our property, and I have it set up. It's got central heat and air and um, sprinkler systems and, and the whole bit and uh, photo period timers and and all that. So everything is set. Yeah, I, I use central heat and air for the air conditioning. I keep my temperatures um, no more than 83 is on the top end. That's when the AC kicks on. Uh, or on the low end is a 78 during the rest of the year. And I keep it like that. I don't change anything. Um, for free, for like pre-breeding conditioning, um, I think that with the bloods, what I'm finding is the best thing is the photo period, just a real sudden jolt in photo period. Huh. And, uh, and they'll go into it. So they're not that hard to cycle. So I can just do the whole room by a, a photo period timer. Huh, that's interesting. 
So do you think that are, – are are you able to manipulate that regardless of the time of year, or did it have a specific season, like, say, wintertime? Yeah, I mean, I I usually do it in wintertime just because that's when we all need a break. But I right. have the ability <laughs> to do it, you know, all year round, anytime I, we want to. Um, okay. And the temperature I don't do anything with. It stays the same year-round. Um, now in wintertime, you know, we're in this latitude where it gets cold. So it's going to drop or it's going to change with the pressure inside of the room. Um, we'll see different things like that happen with a, a little remote weather station. And, and uh, so I can tell that things are changing, even though the background temperature is not really changing that much. Right. So, little things that they pick up on. And, uh, right. With the bloods being kind of sensitive towards respiratory issues, um, I try not to stress them too much with temperature. That seems to be, and it's on both ends. It's on the cool end and on the too warm end that you can get them sick. So I kind of keep them in this range and just kind of target that and and go with it. Huh. Okay. So with photo period, you're saying that are they in cages or racks or what kind oh. of what kind of system do you have set up? Yeah, we use it, um, racks. We use rack systems. The tubs for the uh, the big ones are um, a three by two footprint, and okay. uh, the females have a tub that is about a foot deep, and the males have a tub that is about eight inches deep, pretty sure, or six inches deep maybe. And uh, they're in units that are um, have a thermostat, and the the females are the only ones that have any heat on them. They have a uh, heat strip in the back that stays off most of the year. Uh, during the springtime, when I start seeing some females ovulate, that goes on. And uh, I leave it on until the last female lays her clutch of eggs, and then I turn it back off. And that's just to give them a little background heat, um, which is also the only time you would really see a lot of basking behavior, or I do anyway. Um, right. So they're pretty happy at a at a at a pretty moderate temperature for pythons. The, keeping them like we've kept other things where the hot end gets up to 90 degrees or so is usually bad. That's a, a good way to get them sick. Uh, but, you know, keeping them, like I said, 78 to 84, 83, something like that, you're you're in good shape. Okay. All right. <clears throat> um And with males, you said you, you don't use any kind of heat tape at all. They're just... Uh, ambient temperatures, right? Yep, ambient temperatures okay. all the okay. time. And and awesome. that also reduces some of the one of the things with bloods, one of the things I think that a lot of people got into and, and started seeing was um, how much they would like eat. And if they're hot, they'll, they'll eat too much and sometimes you'll get an issue with a, a regurgitation or two. And um, the males really have such a low metabolism that I keep them on the leaner side anyway. So with that system and a background heat, my males are fed once a month. And uh, so that makes it um, effective as far as management goes. Sure, absolutely. So what size prey are you feeding it? Uh, Medium rat, large rat? Yeah, we get a a medium rat once a month. Um, to a large rat, depending on the size of the male. If it's a male that I raised, they're going to be on the smaller side, so a medium is, is fine. Females will get a, um, like a, I guess, a jumbo rat, um, 
whatever size that is, just the, the biggest end of the rack that I pull out of my uh, my racks when uh, my breeders are retiring, that kind of stuff. Okay. And uh, they get that once a month as well, except for pre-breeding conditioning, in which I double that to twice a month, so just every two weeks. Um, and that seems to do them pretty well. It, it cuts down on the obesity and that kind of stuff, where they're pretty sessile and they're sitting a lot. They tend to get a little on the fat side if they're overfed. Now, this is a question that um, somebody had asked. Uh, how can you tell if your uh, blood python is overweight, obese? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they and they, they certainly have a tendency to do that. Um, basically, if you're looking at them sort of from the top down, you're standing over them looking at them on a table. And uh, what I look for is the the how visible the spine is and, okay uh, you want a slight slope there you don't want them to be so round that you don't see the backbone anymore that's that's too fat uh, but you also don't want them to be too skinny where it's just sort of you know draped over the bones it's just sort of a uh, sort of like a nice full um, diameter with the ridge of the spine poking up right in the middle and uh, that's kind of what I look for and like any other snake, you know, different bloods have different metabolisms, and some of them can handle uh, more food than that and, and do just fine, and some of them need way less than that, especially as they start getting older. And uh, and that's just kind of the lean weight idea that we're we're looking for. The, the males, if they get too big, they just don't breed. They just don't have much interest in breeding, in my experience. And uh, the females, if they're allowed to get too big, there's more complications, get more slugs and uh, more chances of, like, RIs and stuff like that. Okay. okay. So say say that you have a blood that's a little bit on the overweight side. Is it just a matter of cutting back the meals? Uh, do, they, do they lose that weight uh, pretty quickly or? No. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> no. Oh, it's a very okay. long process to slim down I gotcha. a, an overweight blood. Yeah, they, uh, you know, if they kind of shut down their metabolism, the trick is just like on anything else, you don't want the metabolism to shut off because what they'll do is they'll sort of stop using any calories and become very still if you don't feed them anything. So the trick is is to plug them with a small meal, you know, on the normal frequency, but much smaller than you would normally give them. Like, for example, a uh, a larger female that's on the overweight side would get like a small rat once a month, something like that. Okay. Um, and and that what that does is it it keeps it seems like it keeps the weight loss going and they they don't do that stalemate where they just kind of plateau and stay at that same unhealthy weight. And uh, that seems to be the best, but it's still sometimes it takes a more than a year, or maybe a couple of years, to get weight off of a blood python. Wow. Okay. Very slow metabolism. Okay. What so about? Uh, <laughs> yeah. What about <laughs> hydration or humidity? Uh, any thoughts on what you do with yeah. as far as that goes? Yeah, absolutely. Both of those are really, really important with bloods. Um, the hydration they need, you know, plenty of clean water um, very often. They tend to, if if it's a dish big enough for them to enter, they will soak extensively, but I don't really let them do that. It's just 
not hygienic, you know, for the cage and for uh, for them, their skin and all that. So, um, you know, fresh water is really important with uh, with my setup and my, um, I guess, environment. I've got a lot of open turtle tanks with water, so my ambient humidity in the room naturally stays really high. So spraying, I don't really do a whole lot. Um, I may spray from time to time to stimulate breeding or something like that, but I don't usually spray if they're in a shed. Um, my background humidity is always 65% or better, so that seems to be plenty. Okay. So uh, I'm curious, with, with spraying them, are you spraying, if you do spray them, do you mm-hmm. spray the animal directly, or are you doing it, like say, like what chondro guys do where they're spraying like the sides of the cages or something like that? No, I just spray them directly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they seem to, to do fine with it either way. They really like it. They they seem to really kind of, uh, that's when you start getting them to kind of stick their head out. They'll get long tongue flicks where they're sort of examining the environment and just hold the Mr. Nozzle on them, and, and they just really seem to kind of, um, I don't know if enjoy is really that, the right word, but they they don't mind it. They don't freak out or anything like that. Um, now, there's a trick, though. That you, the thing with bloods, you want to maintain high humidity, but you want to have plenty of air circulation, too. That that kind of still stagnant air is um, is a recipe for a respiratory infection. Um, so that's kind of a tricky balance to make. You want to have, like, you know, that's why I've, I was saying with the turtles in the background and the open tanks, that's really been beneficial because I've not had to fight the fight that a lot of people have had to do with putting in mulches and all these other things, but yet trying to maintain adequate airflow. So um, ventilation in the tubs is really important. Ventilation in the in the rack systems, air movement in the room with ceiling fans or, or pedestal fans and um, and all that stuff is, I think, important for any any tropical snake. Right. Yeah, that was one of the. Uh, it, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, when Keith McPeak was on, he was talking about that as well. That uh, he thought that that was one of the reasons why uh, bloods and short tails develop our eyes a lot is because of that poor circulation uh, of air. Uh, so that's interesting. So with the tubs and stuff, are you putting extra holes in the tubs when with them specifically or? No, I I use um I use ARS racks and I had them drilled a different way so okay. that um they could kind of maximize my uh, airflow in the top and um and then you know with the uh the fans going and the humidity from the tanks up it seems to be kind of a good environment for for that kind of a snake. Oh. Now there's a you know the kind of what people go by or what I go by or I think that is important is looking for like if your substrate starts to mold in the corners like some mulch that's been real wet it's it's wrong so you still want a dry substrate and um or in, I think you do anyway in my opinion but right. uh, you want plenty of of humidity and air moving as much as you can make it move okay okay that's good to know um <laughs> uh what about as far as hide boxes go? Do do you think that they need them? Do you use them? Um 
No, I well, only for hatchlings. I, okay. If a hatchling tends to be kind of a slow starter, they'll get a, uh, a flipped over, you know, like plant saucer. But um, anything bigger than that, it's just something to hide waste in and, and make it difficult for me to clean and see everything I need to see when I when I'm out there. So they they lose them as quickly as possible so that I can you know manage them more effectively. Uh, they don't send, they don't seem to need them. The only time that uh, that adults get them are gravid females with a nest box, and uh, that's that is important. They they tend to if they don't have a nest box. I've seen several clutches ruined just because the females will scatter them and roll them all over the cage and drop them in the water and you know everything else. Um, so I like to give them that, and uh, and as soon as they lay, it comes right back out. So. Hide boxes are, I think it's more of a, of a thing to get a tool to get juveniles going rather than a, uh, a, a direct husbandry method. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm curious about you know with, um, I guess with the majority of our of our listeners dealing with, um, say like uh, you know carpet pythons and scrub pythons and, you know long skinnier snakes um is there a difference in handling these guys uh what's your approach what would you recommend as far as uh handling if you're just getting into bloods and short tails yeah i i think they're easier to handle they um they don't grab like uh the scrubs and the carpets and and those types of animals that you know with the jungle carpets uh, or the diamonds or anything else they t- they tend to go up you know, it's like they want to just kind of climb upwards, and bloods want to do the opposite. They they want to be down. <laughs> and uh, so I think the trick is really kind of um, focusing on an approach that's confident and supportive. So you're going to kind of go under them and sort of uh, let them lay on you without trying to manipulate them too much, and they'll be they'll be totally fine. They don't like being grabbed. That uh, that pisses them mm-hmm. off, you know, quicker than anything. But uh, <laughs> You know, using a nice open open technique from underneath, and uh, and they're usually pretty good. even even cranky ones will will respond well to that type of handling. Uh, but the minute you go to like wrap your hand around one, they kind of lose it. They they uh, start doing the whole thing that's giving them a bad rap. You know, and that's what when they first came in, and uh, they tended to be highly aggressive wild caught animals. The uh-huh. first instance to avoid being bitten is to grab this thing by the head, you know? Right. And, uh, and that's really the, the worst thing, like from, from the blood python perspective of, of how to, to go about it. They, it really freaks them out. And, uh, so I think that once people get over that and they learn the handling technique of just sort of, you know, sort of be the substrate to that kind of thing. Um, right. It's all fine. Maybe more, more similar to handling a really, really big, heavy ball python than uh, okay than comparable to a carpet. Okay. All right. Cool. Very cool. Okay. Uh, as far as breeding goes for these guys, uh, what is your approach to? Let's start with uh, um, preseason setup. Like, how, how do you get everybody ready to go into the breeding season? Yeah. So. I guess in in July I start kind of doing my planning 
I start my pre-breeding planning, I guess, and picking um, what males are going to go with which females. And um, at that point, the females start, I'd start doing the double-up meals, so they're getting fed twice a month at that point. And uh, I continue everything as normal into probably November or so. I usually target around Thanksgiving time. And at that point, I give them that sort of sudden jolt of photo period, which seems like it doesn't make sense given that they're, you know, where they occur has basically a 12-hour day and 12-hour night, but it's just sort of a shock to the system that lets them know something's going on. So Mm -hmm. they go from a, um, you know, a 14-hour day down to an 8-hour day and, uh, and just overnight, and that seems to really kind of calm them down. And then I'll leave them, you know, on the darker side like that. And like I said before, I don't change the the temperature at all. I don't do anything until springtime on that. Um, and then around Thanksgiving, I start introductions and just kind of go from there. Um, just being selective anymore, and with the jungles too, if it's not a pairing I intended, there's no backup pairings. It's either the pairing that I picked in July or she's not getting mm-hmm. bred. You know, it's not. She's not going. Okay. Yeah. So, um, for that reason, my production is more limited. I guess I just have six to ten clutches or so a year of uh, of the bloods, Uh, but they're they're purposeful. I think that 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 kind of makes a difference in the end. So, um, I stop feeding. Well, usually by Thanksgiving, the males have quit feeding on their own. They're done. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, they're smelling stuff. You see them cruising the front of the cages every time you go in there. Um, then the females, they usually have a uh, a shed cycle around that time of year, and after that, it's go time, and they start going in and, um, you know, hopefully start recording copulations early. But uh, bloods are not quite like carpets in that they they're sometimes very sneaky about it and. Many times I've gotten eggs from females that I didn't even see copulate. You know that I just thought. Oh really? Yeah, that I just, I just kind of wrote them off. I pulled the male, said, "Well, she's not going to go." And then, um, you know, later in the, in the odd time of year, usually like in June or or July, they'll just out of nowhere sort of ovulate, lay a clutch of eggs, and August that'll hatch in November. So they can be kind of weird like that. They seem to to be able to do some storage. And, uh, and later ovulation. And uh, I'm not sure why that is. I, I have some females that do it routinely, and um, they get bred in the winter and, uh, you know, don't have a clutch of eggs until midway through the next summer. And a couple of times I have, and, and some other breeders have also observed females that were given the year off uh, produce mm-hmm. a fertile clutch from, you know, sperm <laughs> stored from two years ago from the last breeding cycle. Wow. Uh, so they, they're capable of those kinds of funny things. But um, other than that, I guess, let's so, see. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, so with, you know, with the body type of these guys, is it difficult to find if a female is gravid? I mean, they're, they're just the sheer size of them, I mean, yeah. or just their body type would kind of lead you lead me astray. Yeah, absolutely. That's hard. Yeah. Palpating's 
except on younger females, palpating is kind of out of the question until the eggs are developed well enough that you can, you know, and if you've got really sensitive hands or you use like, you know, like a rag between your hand and the belly uh, of the blood, you can sometimes fill some eggs in there, but they're pretty good at, at hiding them away and the other thing that's sort of weird is they don't give you clues all the time. Most of the time, females will stop eating, you know, once they're gravid. Uh, but sometimes mm-hmm. they won't. Sometimes they'll eat. I've had females eat the week before they laid a clutch of eggs. So mm. those kinds of Great. weird things happen, too. Um, okay. Really, it's the first thing I observe is when I've, I start seeing ovulations, when the last female that I expect to ovulate goes, that's when the heat gets kicked back on. And uh, when I see that, I start observing more basking behavior, and that gives me a clue mm-hmm. that maybe something's going on there. Um, but I don't use an ultrasound or any real, like, diagnostic measure to determine if they've got eggs or not. Um, it's just kind of, you know, when you can look at a snake and, like, oh, yeah, she's gravid, and uh, and go on. Okay. Uh, so how long do you keep the boys in with the girls? And you said you introduce around uh, a little bit after Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> how long do they stay in with each other? Um, I, I put them together for the weekends, and I separate for the week. And that's um, just kind of the routine that I started doing a long time ago. So they're together Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The male comes out Sunday night, goes to his cage, they stay apart until Friday morning of the next week and then go back together. And uh, hmm. that's uh, that's always been my, I guess, my strategy on pairing stuff up. Um, it seems like the, the briefer time, the, the three days being together, gives them pr- plenty of time to do whatever they need to do, but the, the rest gives them time to sort of rebuild a little bit for – uh, the females to drink well, feed if they're going to feed, and, and those kinds of things. So, um, well, and then I leave them. I keep cycling them in and out weekly, unless mm-hmm. the males in shed, and then you know he's, he's left alone that week. Uh, but otherwise, they keep going in and out until I see something happen. It's either going to be an ovulation, or I'm going to determine that she's not going to go. And uh, and then, like I said. You know, sometimes even that's surprising. Uh, there's several. Right. Times, you know, you have those surprises later on in the year. But that's the general formula, anyway. Right. Matt. Oh, go ahead, Owen. Go ahead, sorry, Eric. Right. I was, sorry. There was. Um. I was just going to ask you this because um, I stumbled across this paper. Um. It was by uh, Donardo and Autumn. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was called "The Effect of Male Presence." on the reproductive activity in captive female blood pythons. Um, it, basically, it talks about the importance of having uh, a male with a female in order for the uh, to keep follicular uh, growth going. Yeah. Um, and if it's not, then they basically reach a point and then they reabsorb. Have, have you noticed that as, you know... Yeah, I, I have had some females sort of reabsorb, but more often than not, they go, I think. I think that, well, I, the presence of the male being around is important, um, and I don't know if it's a scent thing because being in the same room in rack systems, the smells are very fluid. You know, they're smelling each other uh, in different places. 
Uh, and I think that that's positive. The one thing that I've noticed that, that I found interesting the past several years is that if I take a female, say one of these females that I that I kind of wrote off and said, you know, she's not going to breed, and I put her in with a female that's already ovulated, something about mm-hmm. that will sometimes spur an ovulation out of that out of that female that I pulled. I don't know if it's a, a hormonal thing or a trigger, or maybe just purely coincidental. And then she was going to ovulate anyway. Who knows? But um, so the male presence is important, but I think with younger females, maybe even being in the same room or in the same cage or in the same environment as a as a fully breeding, maturing, gravid female, I think that helps too. I think it's a sign to the younger females that all is safe and we can breed. You know that we can we can afford right. this uh, expensive venture of uh, producing a clutch of eggs. So, right. But, you know, who knows, again. <laughs> Matt, uh, Matt do, you, do you feel that, I know that one of the tricks I have with the carbapythons when I'm breeding them is if I don't see any action to pull, to separate the pair for like a day or two and then reintroduce. Yeah. Do you kind of feel that like every Friday when you're putting them back in, they've like totally forgot each other and were like, who are you kind of deal, like kind of <laughs> rejuvenates the whole pairing again? Yeah, I, I think it. I think they do because most of the breeding that I record, most of the dates that I write down for copulations are Fridays and Saturdays, when mm-hmm. those pairs just go back together. I still see something on Sundays sometimes, but you know when you see the, I guess active courting where the male is there and he's spurring the the hell out of her and, and just you know doing all the things that you want to see him doing. That's on that reintroduction. It's like if I put them together Friday morning, I go home from work Friday evening, I can walk in and see, you know, 10 pairs copulating, which is... Uh, right. So I do think that the separation helps. Um, but, you know, with the carpets, too, I tended to, with with them, they seemed like they would breed to the point of where they just wouldn't breed anymore, like nothing was happening, but she wasn't ovulating either. And um, right. that was my sign to kind of separate them. And I think that they just reached a certain point of follicular development that, um, you know, whatever signals are sent, whatever pheromones are being produced are, are no longer there. So as long as the males show interest throughout the year, I'll put them together. I figure if he's showing interest, there has to be something going on. So sometimes they may go through that pairing cycling all the way up, you know, from Thanksgiving all the way up into May of the next year, if I still think there's a chance of them going. So I don't think it's ever too late, I guess, to to, right. to pair them up. That's cool. I mean, you always hear about people who pull apart the pairs because it's beyond, or their other animals are laying eggs or getting ready to, so they must have missed it. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that sometimes okay. that's a missed opportunity. At the same time, um, these these figuring out these snakes to breed in these pythons, they um, you know you just have to think about it being a very much a, like an opportunity for them. For everything has to be right, and their size has to be right, and their weight has to be right, and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And and that's not the same for every single female. If you've got a if you've got a collection and you've got 
you know, 10 or 20 females, even of the same species, they're all going to be individuals and, and their timing. Right. So I think right. that's important, like, as a as a herper to watch those individual cues uh, to make the most out of your your projects. Makes sense. So once you've got the eggs, how do you... Do you have you ever let one of them maternally incubate, or do you artificially incubate? I artificially incubate just about everything. I I've had them. I've had maternal incubated clutches, and they do fine. Um, it's just that I usually use the female again that year, so I want to get weight back on her as quickly as possible. I tend to uh, I cycle two years on, one year off. So my females get bred okay. two years in a row. Then their third year they have off. And then I've got it staggered so different females are filling the void on that off year. So, um, gotcha. Being, by that organization, when I get a clutch of eggs, um, I tend to not let the females sit on them just because I, you know, I, I need to get size back on them. And, and in an incubator, mm-hmm. I have greater control. So I can watch the temperatures, I can watch the humidity, that kind of stuff. Right. So how do you set up the artificial, like how do you set up the eggs in the incubator? And yeah, what's the you use for an incubator? I use a Habitat Systems incubator. One okay. of the, they, um, they've got one that's kind of, it's like a front opening closet kind of size. Uh, so I've got one of those, and uh, I basically, when the clutch is laid, I've given them a nest box at that point, so I pulled the nest box and everything out because even, you know, the tamest of females will sometimes get a little testy when she's got her eggs. Um, So I want to work with them from above. I Uh take the egg box with the snake and everything, and I put it uh, down on the floor, and I take the lid off and see how I kind of read the snake, and if she's going to let me, then I'm just going to real gently scoop her up and put her back in her cage and and then take the eggs, and if she's not, then I'm going to use a towel and just kind of lay over top of her and try to do the same thing um, as much as she'll let me. And then I'll pick the eggs up. I use um, sphagnum moss in the uh, nest boxes, so the eggs will be in there. Uh, I use perlite to incubate on or a coarse-grade vermiculite um, or maybe a mixture of both that really doesn't seem to matter too much. They're not like the, uh, the Aspidites eggs. They're they're pretty hardy eggs. Um, so they get nestled in perlite and um, set up in the incubator. I incubate at uh, 88, and about 60-ish days later, you should see little heads poking out. Wow. Uh, okay, so 60 at 88, that's a little bit warmer and a little bit longer than mm-hmm. I think a carpet python clutch that I've had at least. Yeah, um, 88 uh, is just kind of my the incubation temperature that I use for everything. So I've stuck with that as as much as possible. And uh, okay. the length of time is is kind of variable. They can have some oddball time periods in there. I've had eggs go 70 days before they hatch, and I've had eggs hatch as quickly as like 52 days so okay that kind of varies a little bit also but 
more or less, yeah, the 88 and, and 60 days is what I set up my records for. So that's when I start checking stuff. Usually you'll see the normal thing, like with any python clutch, you'll put the eggs in the incubator and nothing will really go on. And then about two weeks later, three weeks later, you'll start seeing the condensation develop as the eggs are developing. And, um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, you see the thing... Uh, I don't have to pay as much attention to keeping the eggs perfectly dry like I have with other species. So if a little okay. bit of condensation falls on them, it's no problem with the blood eggs. Um, bloods tend to have a, a smaller number of really big eggs versus the Borneos and the Blacks that have a, a big clutch of small eggs. So, or at least that's what I've seen. The uh, the biggest blood clutch that I've ever had has been like 20 eggs and um, okay and that's a pretty good size clutch for for red blood the um, the the Sumatrans and the Borneos you know they can have huge numbers of eggs but they're they're rather smaller so the uh, the hatchlings are a little bit um, not more fragile just smaller to work with I think okay and you said that these things were not as fragile as Espedites. Would you say that the Espedites was probably one of the most fragile species of eggs that you've ever dealt with, as opposed to, like, where the bloods are probably maybe even the most hardy? Yeah. Yeah, I would. They, uh, okay. The the Espedites eggs, well, the walnuts not so much. The blackheads, the eggs are... <clears throat> just really, really sensitive to moisture levels and changes, and and uh, they were always kind of a, uh, you know, sort of a baited breath hatch. You'd watch them and watch them and hope and hope, and then sometimes still things would go wrong, and you'd have a bunch of dead babies in the eggs, which is, you know, disheartening. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. They are very, very sensitive to moisture, and they can, if they get wet, I mean, they can just tank really, really quickly. The... The blood eggs, I'm going to say they're harder to deal with than a ball python. You know, probably about the same in difficulty as, like, hatching a carpet python. So okay. they're pretty, you know, not not terribly difficult. But um, Okay. Yeah. Not a beginner, but not terribly difficult. Intermediate, we'll say. Definitely, definitely intermediate. They're, like I said, they're not the blackheads. They're not, like, hatching chondros. And, uh, and some of those other types of, of things that have a very delicate egg, but, um, you know, not quite like uh, the balls either. So, yeah, intermediate is perfect. Cool. Um, so now we've got babies. And uh-huh. how do we set these little guys up, and what do we do with them <laughs> after we get them? <laughs> I, um, <clears throat> what I do is I, I have, once the eggs start hatching in the incubator, I pull the whole clutch, the whole box out, and I put all of them, the eggs and the hatchlings and everything that's going on, in just a normal rack system tub on uh, on towels, paper towels. And I just mm-hmm. let them come out, and I I tend to, once they come out and they kind of rub off all of the, uh, you know, the egg goo and all the stuff that's on them, they, uh, they go into a, a neighboring box set up the same way, just with damp paper towels and a... Uh, a deli dish for water, and I'll leave the whole clutch together for a week, sometimes five days to a week, just that kind of thing, and um, 
when I get to separating them out, they'll set up. I'll set them up individually. Um, they get newspaper at first, and then as feeding trials kind of commence, that may change um, depending on if they're picky or not. Uh, being the kind of snake that they are, the picky feeders that you have can usually be corrected by using moss. You know, using like spagna, a damp sphagnum moss in the uh, the baby tub. Okay and let them hide under it, you know, so they feel that security. And then they kind of, when you introduce a, a prey item, like a fuzzy rat, and they feel it kind of bouncing around on top of the moss bed, they, they're more likely to sort of strike up and do that explosive sort of predatory thing that they do. It seems to really stimulate that response. So they'll get substrate at that point if, uh, if they're going to be picky feeders. Most of them are not, so most of them stay on newspaper. And um, I use a 12-ounce deli cup for water, and that's about mm-hmm. it. So um, the first step, what I'll do is cool. if I have a picky feeder, I see something that's, you know, somebody's not eaten for a while, I'll put a, mm-hmm. a, a high box in and try that first. And if that doesn't work, I usually go to the moss step, and uh, that usually does the trick. Now, Just adding we, moss to the. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Owen. <laughs> damn it! You, you and I are gonna talk later. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, we we've talked to Matt Minatola about huh? babies, bloods, and short tails, and things like that. And apparently, like dehydration is very very dangerous to these guys. So yeah. like. Would you like so definitely keep them very humid or uh, a larger hide spot, a larger water bowl, or you just like soak them in water for a while? Uh, yes, all those things. Yeah, you wanna you okay. wanna maintain hydration <laughs> with uh, with babies for sure. They can dehydration is, uh, I mean that's a, that's a death sentence for a little blood. They they can do it rapidly too, and. Um, yeah, I use um, you know a big, a bigger than normal, I guess, deli dish for such a small um, shoebox for my rack systems. Mm-hmm. But I want them to be able. That's really the point where it's kind of okay if they get in and soak and do that kind of thing at least until um, their first shed. And I know that they've identified the water bowl and they're drinking on their own and all that kind of stuff. Because sometimes if you put a small water dish in there, they just don't even seem to. They don't get it. Uh, they try to get in it, and they try to hide in it. They flip it over. They do all these kinds of things where, you know, they're just sort of messing with it. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, a good sturdy, a good broad-based water dish that they can't topple, that they can get in there and at least get a good drink. And if they tend to, you can kind of pull open the drawer and tell real quickly just by the skin condition. If they start to kind of prune up, uh, then you've got it too wet. And you want to back right. off on it a little bit because what happens with that is when people keep them too wet, that seems to like be a, a pretty good breeding ground for like molds and bacteria and other types of health issues. So if you're gonna, I guess if you're gonna have an error, error on the side of of dryness, and then make sure they're drinking. But um, and then like I said, last ditch is when the substrate comes in. I hate dealing with substrate, so. That's, uh, that's kind of why that is. So it's, so it's that, like the last ditch effort. It just invites laziness. You know, the substrate, I've tried it for years. I've tried 
aspen i've tried sandy chips i've seen all that kind of stuff and and myself i go in there and i'm in a hurry i'm like i'll just spot clean this and go on i'll just you know grab this and go and and that that's not a a real thorough kind of cleaning that i want so i just had to get get rid of substrate altogether and just make myself quit being lazy (laughs) um (laughs) yeah you were saying about moss basically you're just adding that and the idea is i guess that um uh, they get down in the uh, in that moss and they're able to hide. It gives them a more uh, they feel more secure. Is that is that the idea? Okay, that's it. Yeah, that's it. They, uh, you know, I think out of every clutch of every species that I've ever hatched, there's one or maybe two just non-thrivers. They just don't ever really kick in. They don't grow like their siblings. They don't perform like their siblings. And I don't think there's much we can do about that. I think that just happens. But right. um, sometimes, you know, it's just because the right cues aren't really getting the right response in the brain. And, and feeding, I think, is one of those things when they're when they're little and they're trying to learn, um, trying to capitalize on their instincts by putting them in the moss because they can kind of, you know, like you said, just nestle under it and feel real protected and real secure and, and – uh, safely feel like they can risk the act of feeding so okay i I think that helps a lot and then you'll notice too even the good feeders what they'll tend to do on the newspaper they'll sort of worm their way between the sheets or they'll get under the whole thing all together because they want to they they like that same feeling you know being underneath something so right that's kind of the theme i guess um I'm curious, what what are you using as, um, are you using like rat pups or what size mm-hmm. are you using for babies? I, my first attempt is always with, uh, with little rats. That's always okay. the best way to do it. I, I, I use, I raise rodents, so I've got, you know, all, I usually start with live and that live kind of rat flicking around in there and rolling and tumbling really gets them stimulated. Uh, if that doesn't work, and I go through the steps of setting them up on the moss and all that stuff. I'll uh, sometimes use like a, a hopper mouse in controlled settings. I don't, you know, you don't want to leave anything like that alone with them for a while because the bloods will totally not defend themselves. They will, they will get bitten by a rat or a mouse all day. So if you use anything that's weaned, like a mouse, you know, you want to keep an eye on them. They gotcha. tend to start poorly for me on frozen thawed. They really, really like a little bit of movement and uh, that stimulation. And plus, the babies seem like they really just want to feed at like 3 a.m. You know, so it's a uh, really yeah. <laughs> they just it's like dead middle of the night when when they uh, usually I, I start hearing them eating or seeing something going on. But when I put it in there, you know, before I leave, usually nothing happens and it's gone overnight. Right. Um, the switchover is easy, so that's that's kind of good news. Um, I had a lot of jungle carpets that would just they had a thing for mice, you know, back back then. I don't know if ones currently bred still have that kind of preference where sometimes they can be tricky with rats, but yep. uh, the bloods the the hunger wins every time. So <laughs> they uh, yeah. you know, they they're not going to give in to these little these little cravings and and insist on something i've had very few 
bloods or short tails that do that kind of pickiness like I experienced with some of the other things. Um, so once they start feeding, they're they're usually good to go. I get six to ten mils in them usually before shipping, and that occurs over you know the first few months, and they seem to be pretty solid by then. So I think that's a they're pretty easy once you get that initial mill in them. Now I don't know I can't I don't remember if Owen asked this question or not, but do you follow the same? Do you, what are you feeding the babies weekly, or are you following that same schedule of every two weeks? No, I feed weekly yeah. for weekly? for that first okay. year. Okay. Yeah. Um, the um, once I identify keepers or holdbacks or you know whatever I'm going to do, I keep I usually keep something out of every single clutch, even if I sell it later, because. I want to see what the genetic potential is behind that project. So if I produce a clutch of animals from a given pair of snakes that I've not bred before, I want to know what to expect with the development of the offspring, just like with the jungles, exact same mindset. And um, if that happens, once they hit a year old, that's when I adjust their schedule. So I get them on. Yeah, I get them on. I get them switched over and, uh, and all that stuff to at about a year old, and the the males will start going once a month, and then the females will, you know, adjust to um, twice a month, and then when they're okay. breeding size for the first time, that's when I usually switch them over to uh, the full schedule. Now, as far as the babies go, is any species hardier or um, more sensitive than the other, or are they all about the same in your experience? I've had really, really great luck with baby Sumatrans. They seem to be very hardy and very willing to eat. Um, or it could just be, you know, the the stock, the the, the adults that I use passing on good genes. But, um, uh-huh. you know, out of a clutch of, uh, say, 20, a lot of times I'll have 15 feet on the first try, on the first night oh. of the first try, yeah. <laughs> And then usually within the next two weeks, the other five will come around or, or close to it, you know. So they seem to be, for me, the strongest feeders out the gate. The most difficult feeders for me as hatchlings are the Borneos. And uh, I don't know why that is. It's probably something in my husbandry that I've not really identified yet. But all the other ones start well for me, except for the Borneos can be a little bit more painstaking. Um, so they're usually the ones that I have to play with, the ones that I have to, like, you know, sit up late and try to tease feed it, you know, in dim lighting and, and be real still and, and, and that whole kind of thing. It's usually, <laughs> it's usually what I find myself doing with Borneo clutches. Uh, and then the reds are, you know, they're somewhere in between. The bloods are, uh, some of them will take right off. Some of them will be a little bit slower. That's kind of how they seem to shake down for me. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, we're going to get into a little bit of your specific projects that you're working with um, and uh, talk about, you know, some of the selective breeding. It seems, and this is just my uh, perception, is that you're very um, in tune with selective breeding. Um, do you, uh, when you accept something, like what, is there a particular, I guess it changes with each project, but 
you know, do you, do you see a baby uh, or uh, or an animal and you say, oh, that's kind of neat. I think I can take this, you know, to make this a stripe or whatever the case would be. Is is that usually how your projects come about, or? Yeah, uh, you know, it just it. Yeah, I guess I, I look at something and I think about what would happen if I bred it with this or you know that or what what happens when I do this particular cross with this this stripe and this stripe and um so yeah I'm, I guess I'm kind of interested in in that part and I think that the selective breeding part of um of what all of us do as herpers is really the most one of the most important parts that we do because I think it forces us to be more refined in what we're producing and that's hopefully will avoid you know overpopulation problems overproduction problems just where there's so many animals like um when you go to a show and you see like you know any of these very commonly bred animals that are sort of overproduced you know right um i think that being intentional about the pairings and being you know very focused on your projects or for me that's that's really what it's always that's been the interesting part for me because I want to see what I can do um biologically you know with the animal, but I'm also kind of interested in what I can do artistically with like what patterns I can develop and what what colors I can bring out what what things might you know appeal to people or appeal to me, and then hopefully other people like them too i guess <laughs> I, uh, okay um when I was looking at your Facebook page, um, which uh, for the listeners, if you want to check it out, it's uh, Selective Origins. Um, it's, you have a project called the Sun Glow Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a that's been a very long term project. It's uh, I got some animals from the uh, VPI several years, long time ago, actually, and. Um, uh, just working that project out, uh, I kept on having a hard time deducing what exactly in my production was a sun glow that matched what I was seeing in their production. I knew I was using the same line of animals. So, you know, it just took a long time and a lot of kind of clutches and selective breeding to get the traits that I wanted to see back out because they didn't seem to reproduce exactly the way I expected them to. So it was kind of fun in that in that regard, I wanted, you know, all of us want the, the instant gratification of seeing something popping out of the clutch, but it took four clutches for me to to get one. And then um, once that happened, you know, it's, of course, I you know, I kept them all, most of them, and, and uh, they're back into the program now, so I can be more consistent with that. But it's uh, it's been a fun project. Um, I think we're still learning about the hypo trade and the, in the blood pythons, and um, some of these animals have have kind of funky modes of inheritance that we see mostly with like Borneos. But I think that this hypo trait that's connected to the sun glow is sort of like that with the bloods. It's not quite as expected as as maybe a, like a T positive albino. It's pretty predictable. So now that uh, I've got what I need, I think it's just a matter of time of kind of focusing on the right stripes to, to bring out the colors more and uh, just taking it in that direction, I think. Okay. So what does that color do as adults? What are they? Well, the ones that I'm raising, 
Um, you know, it took me a while to get them, so they're still young animals. But uh, they're showing just incredible color. I've, I've got this kind of um, coral pink base color with this sort of whitish, yellowish, very vividly marked stripe. And you lose a lot of the um, the interference on the sides, which is normal. You know, normal pattern elements that creep up on the on the sides of the snake. Uh, that's reduced because of the stripe line that's used to, to produce okay. those sun glows. So um, now I'm kind of interested in bringing some of the side pattern back in with these little, you know, kind of aspects of where you get some purple spotting down the sides of this bright yellow stripe and that sort of color, uh, that sort of coral color. So I already see things that I want to do. Um, right. So I'm I'm hoping that as they grow up and become fully mature they keep this color even intensify that's one thing that i really like about the bloods is they just get you know better and better and better um, as they age and get bigger so that's a that's a big plus so i'm really hoping for good things i'm hoping they're they stay bright and crisp wow. and colorful that's yeah. a pretty animal yeah yeah I, sh- I shared it over in the uh in our chat um over from your facebook page just yeah they're gorgeous Thank you. And Blunt and I wow. didn't get along, so that's saying something. <laughs> <laughs> that's because they know you don't like them, Owen. <laughs> they know. They know. I, called, I, I may have called them slugs too many times when I was over at Matt Minnesota's, and now they all <laughs> hate me. So uh, that may be. That may be. That's uh, the slugs is. Uh, I guess that's an insult to a blood python. Yeah, I suppose. Very, so. very derogative term. Owen. <laughs> uh, let's talk about um, the golden eye. I'm curious um, if maybe you could give us some background on that. It seems to be um, a gene that you're working with quite a bit in your collection, and I can understand why because it's incredible. Um, but could you talk a little bit about uh, that and what you have going on? Yeah, it's uh, the golden eye is uh, it's my favorite morph. It's got everything that when I you know saw blood pythons it sort of and then I saw the golden eye morph it sort of exemplified all the things that I really like a really wild pattern a, a ton of variability and a ton of opportunity to do things with other projects and uh, you know some of them came in I don't know when it's been several years ago through Bushmaster and, and various uh, them and uh, VPI and started working with them and I was lucky enough to get um, some F1s from some of those first ones and uh, I've been mixing and matching them ever since. I, uh, we've done T-positives, we've done uh, hets for T-negative which we're hoping to breed this year, um, we've done the pixels, we've done everything we can think to do with uh, the golden eye except breed it to itself. We just always have they make a magpie if they're if uh if they're bred together and I've not hit on that yet. I've I've only tried once though, so it it just didn't happen for whatever reason. I had a clutch failure and uh so I wanna do that. But um they tend to really, really make some interesting combos with other morphs. So I think that uh as we see more golden eye mixes coming about with different stuff, different projects of Morse that we'll see a whole lot more. I think that they're just kind of the tip of the iceberg. 
Yeah, my favorite one is the Pixel by far. That is just the I like that busy pattern that but it's 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 bald, you know, like the pattern is not there in certain spots. Oh man, that just does it for me. That's really yeah. a cool cool snake. Um yeah, I really like this too. Has the uh T negative golden eye been produced? Has anybody produced it? Not yet. That, no, that's uh, going to be killer. <laughs> yeah, we're we're hoping that happens soon. So that's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really want to see that. I, the um, uh, and then you know when you start combining that with the combo morphs, you can do like a a T negative double O seven or a T negative pixel. You know, down the road where you've got such a busy pattern with that clean back, and then you've got the whites and the reds. I think all that stuff's just going to be incredible. This is going to be a really wow. good project. Now, for listeners that may not know, what is the 007? It's a combination of the golden eye and... And the matrix gene. Matrix, so a, right. Okay. Yeah, I, I used an ivory because sometimes when you use matrix and you get matrix offspring, I didn't want there to be any doubt because on the first... I didn't know that they were going to turn out looking the way that they did. They're so obvious that they're very easy to pick out, but... Not knowing that, um, when we decided to do that, when we used an ivory, uh, so that way, you know, when we got whatever offspring we were expecting to get, we would know what influence the ivory had, giving them the matrix gene. So um, that was our choice to do with that project. And then when they came out, they were just, I didn't expect anything like that at all. They almost looked like, you know, sort of a version, a variation of a magpie, something that uh, that we'd seen with uh, some other types of snakes. Uh, so that was a total surprise, but a happy one. That was a good one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and they, you know, we've we've we raised a, a few males up and bred them this year, and and same thing again. We used an ivory in the in the breeding, so. I think we have some that are golden eye ivories since they were both already 007s. So you have the matrix into the ivory, producing more ivories. So the ones that hit on an ivory golden eye um, look really different. I'm I'm really excited about them. Yeah, I'm looking at the um, over on your Facebook page. You have uh, you have I guess it's like the whole clutch of, uh, or at least a few of them. Uh, yeah. From that clutch, they're yeah, incredible. Pretty, they're cool. They're, yeah. yeah, they uh, and they're getting better too as they're growing now and they're putting on size. They, uh, I, I noticed the change. So the double O seven sort of take on an age progression more similar to an ivory, and as, as that as they age, they develop more, like I guess you'd call it shading down the back, more not really a muddiness, but just a, a variation in the color. Right. Um, the golden eye ivories don't seem to be taking the same progression. They um, they're staying super white and super crisp, and they've got uh, really crazy stuff going on. So I'm pretty excited to see what they mature, how they mature. Um, I don't think that they're going to have the pink that that we're seeing with the 007s coming out later in life. Um, you know, as a, as they reach like two years old, three years old, that kind of thing. The 007s tend to start displaying a lot like red heads and very pink forebodies. And I don't, 
know that the uh, the golden ivories will be will be doing the same thing, but I think they're going to be super interesting in their own right. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I the one I don't know if you remember this, but the one that sort of almost has a stripe, almost I would say three quarters down the back. Mm-hmm. Is that a double o seven ivory? Um, what does the, the head I mean, look like? <laughs> um, I said a double o seven ivory. I mean, <laughs> um, hold on, let me pull it up one more time. It's uh, the head is actually kind of unique, where it has kind of like it looks like a white spot in the middle of its head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that's, almost like uh, the that's one of them. Okay. Yeah. That's why I was asking. They do, they did, they do have that uh, sort of distinct head, um, which is turning out really interesting because on all of them, the um, the nares, the nostrils are patterned on the head, which makes a black dot right over the nostrils, and um, it kind of looks really. It's a really interesting look uh, on it, and then that white spot, you know, like on the top of the head that you're mentioning. So that's. That's cool too. Yeah, I'm I'm anxious to see what they what they do and how they develop. Wow. It's a cool looking snake for sure. Okay. Um so as far as another project, uh the Lily line, um could you give us some background on that and what you're doing with that? Yeah, that's a that's um an interesting one. And I'm still trying to figure it out. Um <laughs> Back, I guess, in, uh, I don't know, 2002 or 2004, I I got a call from VPI saying that they were working on a project that uh, Tracy was calling Lilies. And um, they wanted to, to, to get some out and see what I thought about them. And they looked cool. They were great snakes. They, they looked really nice. They turned nice and red. And uh, they had this really kind of interesting black work i guess the uh the black on there is the blackest pitch that i've ever seen on the bloods i mean it is the deepest black that uh that i've been able to find to work with and the the pattern is kind of a barren in that all that black is usually in the form of little dots and dashes and chains down the sides um what we found out later on so i raised the project up and i breed them and you know, they produce more of themselves, and, and that's cool. But the male I had also used for a, um, a T-positive a female, and I noticed that the babies, being an outbreeding, I could tell, you know, which ones had more of those markers, that the really black color and the, the chain work down the side and that kind of stuff. And and then when I raised those up and produced the albinos with those, I could tell immediately that something was going on. These were... These were different, so I started crossing them with other things, and the results kind of kept on um, encouraging that uh, everything I'd breed them to, they would produce some sort of weird variation of uh, of the morph I was looking at. So I'm unclear really as to what <clears throat> the, the history of the gene is before I got them. So I'm not sure what VPI was doing or how many years they had put into it, if any, or. It could have just been the one clutch. I really don't know, but um, I'm glad that I got them, and I've I've crossed them into just about everything I have, and I'm excited to see what they do every year. The color seems to be very consistently red, uh, although 
you know, the oranges and the yellows, you can get those types of bloods too, just uh, not as frequently. The um, the black is impressive. I, I think that it enhances the projects that I've been crossing it into. So I've been seeing, you know, really, really good results with uh, with that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping to keep on working with it and, and do a lot more things. I've got um, I've got a lot of holdbacks, and I think that's going to be another key in the future is to, ch- to kind of enhance and clean up and, and add a little something to to some of these other projects. So it's been great. Cool. Awesome. Um, are there any other morphs out there that kind of like uh, have caught your eye or something that you were maybe thinking about getting into? Yeah, there's a few, you know, here and there that I see mostly just through the random picture on Facebook or um, a picture on a website or something like that, but I don't see them on the market very much or, or really at all yet, so I'm hoping that that changes in the future. There's um, a blood morph called a wrought iron that I'm really interested in. There's some uh, yeah, there's some cool. other things. That, yeah, those are really, really interesting. Um, <clears throat> the head on those is just bizarre. But um, So one day I, I, I'd like to get into some of those. And then really um, I want to just kind of focus on my own on my own projects here. Um, this year with our, our hatchlings was the third generation of line breeding on, on one particular project. So it's been, you know, a long time in, uh, in developing. It's been like a 10-year thing. So it's it's really rewarding to see so many generations that, you know, you've hatched and kept something from and, and what it can do, you know, later on for your collection. So really I just want to kind of focus on my own ideas and my own projects with this, you know, saving for a very few number of, uh, of incoming things down the road. Gotcha. Has there any bit, has there been anything that you've bred that you thought it was going to turn out one way and it completely blew you away when it came out and wasn't what you thought? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think that happens. That happens a lot with bloods. They, um, they just have such a tremendous amount of natural variability that even when you put two nice-looking normals together, you, you're you going to get a ton of different-looking babies. So there's characteristics that I see that are like, that's cool, you know, that's that's neat, that's unique, that's interesting. Um, and so I think we see that that all the time, really, with, with the blood pythons, which is one of the reasons I like working with them. Right. Uh, just the extreme variability not just in pattern but color you know even on like like i said if you take out the morph picture altogether and you're just dealing with blood pythons for blood pythons you're still going to get a tremendous variety of colors and patterns and stripes and just looks overall so i think that's a, a really intriguing aspect of, of working with these projects Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree. It seems that, um, you know, I, <laughs> I hate to use the word dinker, but, um, it seems that blood pythons oh, kind of have that, uh, <laughs> have that aspect to them because it seems like, uh, you know, they just, you know, like you're saying that variability is there and you can kind of take yeah. it in a whole bunch of different directions. Yeah. And the opportunities with Borneos, for example, are, are endless. I mean, because of the 
the way that the genetics work, the projects that some of these breeders are undertaking that are, you know, just excellent at what they do. And, um, I mean, I think just for that alone, there's, there's endless opportunity to, to create really spectacular animals. Yes, absolutely. I'm curious, um, what projects are you working on with your Borneos? Um, I'm working with some of Keith's stuff, actually, uh, since you mentioned him earlier. I've got some, some great uh, leopard stuff and his classics, some of his work that he's been doing for a long time. And then I've, pick, I've picked up some super stripes from various people and granites and um, just some really cool projects like that. Um, nothing really... I guess is like cutting edge or new as some of the blood projects that we're doing, but just some good classics, just some beautiful, beautiful animals. Gotcha. Um, and then with okay. the Sumatrans, you know, I mean, we're, I, I'm kind of interested in a line breeding project for the, the orange headed uh, variety, which is also the variety that the, the T positive albino has popped up in. And uh, they, um, yeah. the orange heads are just spectacular great-looking animals. Yes, I love them. They are, I have uh, just the, you know, the, the regular Sumatrans, um, but uh, those orange-head ones, yeah, mm. they're uh, they're special, for sure. Yeah, I think so, too. So I think, as far as a dinker would go, that would be my dinker. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, okay. the orange-headed Sumatran thing. Now, how does that... Um, you know, when when they come out of the egg, uh, I'm not really 100%. Or do, do they have that head, or does it develop as they become adults? Yeah, I think they they have it as they hatch, and okay, you know, they uh, they can and you can kind of pick what you what you're looking for. Like in that case, if I was looking for at a clutch of babies, I tend to look for the way that the the orange was on the hatchlings, you know, and how it wraps around the head or how far back it extends on the neck or the pitch of it, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but, um, <clears throat> yeah, they're pretty much born like that. Um, they just get better as they get bigger. Right. Okay. Um, cool. All right, Owen. <clears throat> cool. Uh, so let's take it here um now matt we do tend to close out with a few projects or a few questions that we end up asking everybody um and these are the hardest questions we probably are going to ask you um and it would be if you could work with any species without limitations of money or uh law what would it be and why Hmm. um I'd probably focus on Madagascan tortoises. I'd, I'd love to have some plowshares lumbering around or uh, some of the spider groups. I think those are phenomenal animals that uh, that need a lot of work, and I've just been a big personal interest in, in most of those. So I would have to say probably some, Madagasc- some special Madagascan tortoises. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, the, um, um, Snake-wise, I've always, you know, I've got a, in my mind one day I'm going to get some Bolan's pythons. I know Keith's already gone down that road and some other there guys. There you go. <laughs> you know, they really got into it. But uh, they, uh, you know, that's, I guess that would be an attraction back towards Morelia. Um, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I would I would probably drift. But that's that's a a really intriguing project. It sounds exciting. Sounds like people are making like some good progress. Um, I'm just not set up for it right now. Yeah. Right. You should. If you don't want Bowling's, you should stop talking to Keith immediately. Just cut him <laughs> off like, forever. Because yeah. I don't want Bowling's, and he has me like every other day going, you know, I could probably get one in here somewhere. And that's a bad <laughs> place to be. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. I'm curious. You said you worked with um, scrub pythons. What kind of scrubs mm-hmm. did you work with? I had Barnacks, uh, and I had Malukins. And, um, they were they were a lot of fun. They were they were great to work with. They definitely keep you on your toes. Um, <laughs> they they remind you, you know, of of really what's going on here. They seem to be, I guess, intelligent or at least aware, you know, of what's going uh-huh. on. They just have that kind of. Uh, I always loved looking at them, especially around like dusk uh, hours where the eyes are just kind of ticking around and follow you as you walk in front of the cage, you know, they just kind of follow you. Mm-hmm. With vision and and uh, that's sort of, I like that. I think that's a, that's a cool trait. That was just another one too, that the size wasn't really appropriate for my life right now, but right. Uh, I really, really like Barnex and Malukins a lot. So, uh, there could be a did day you, when did you ever breed them? I did or? not. I was I, I tried I tried with um, my Malukins and was unsuccessful, as I guess many people have been. But yeah, that's so that's the other reason too. It's one of the things that I've gotten that I just you know I got rid of before I bred, and usually that that breaks my rule. You know, I have to breed it at least <laughs> once before it can. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Uh, I probably have to get back into those at some point and and maybe try that again. But uh, which uh, road yeah. which would lead me to my next question: What do you think? Why do you think that they're so difficult to breed? Any thoughts? Uh, we just haven't figured out the tricks, the the environmental stimulation that that creates that response. I mean, the breeding part's not hard. You can just put them together, or I could, you know, I'd, I'd see breeding happen. It's the the ovulation and the fertile egg part that uh, right. that became tricky, and um, I think it's like any other species. We just it's something we just haven't figured out yet. But you know, there's there's lots of talented breeders working on uh, on some stuff. So, and I hope that Absolutely. they progress. I I'm kind of uh, I don't keep up with the times a lot, so I don't you know some of these new things like I don't know if they're being bred with any more regularity now or not than they were 10 years ago, but I would hope so. Yeah. Uh, a little bit, wouldn't you say, Owen? I mean... Uh, yes and no, it depends on the species of, you know, what, what, what we're looking at, what we're talking about. I mean, uh, Dave Means is no longer in it, so that is probably a big hole you have there with the whole captive born and bred scrubs. But yeah. there are usually about a clutch or two a year in the States, not to mention the little ones that make their way over. So um, they're available. It's just, you'd like to see them more available. And it's, it's only a certain number of scrubs. Like nobody's really producing Malukins on a steady, even keel. Um, and nobody's really producing uh, 
too many of the different types of bar neck. So, uh-huh. yeah, we'll uh, get there. I'm, I'm curious. Um, one other question, Owen. I'm going to jump in here real quick. Um, with, uh, you know, we're talking about these different species, and at one point, um, you know, bloods were coming in as wild caught or – uh, have you ever had any experience with uh, acclimating uh, wild caught bloods? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's Are they chore. difficult? <laughs> yeah, they can be. They can be really difficult. They, uh, you know, first of all, it's just the the fear that they possess, and they're they're so flighty and willing to bite and willing to spray and do all the things that you don't want to deal with, you know. And um, when they've come in, because of that attitude, they've usually been really roughly handled by the exporters or whoever. So they're usually dinged up, and they've got, you know, sometimes a noose mark, sometimes scars. You know, I've got a, a female T-negative albino that by the time I got her, she, she was missing an eye. You know, just those oh, kind, of, kind of crazy behaviors that they they can tend to do. And uh, they also tend to come in with a pretty heavy parasite load so the first things like with uh, i guess blood acclimation 101 is soaking you know they you gotta think this animal's been in transit for who knows how long and has never seen a water bowl before that so a soak you know an actual like physical in a, a tub with water for you know the first night at least and probably the next day is, a, is the step in rehydration and then um you got to worm them because they tend to have these really big parasite loads when they come in. Um, so that is a chore in and of itself, especially if this is a wild-caught adult we're talking about and trying to to get them deparasitized. Um, so it's usually, you know, a lot of, of blood and sweat and stress on both on both ends. So <laughs> not, not a fun process, but. Um, but yeah, it, it can it, it can certainly be successfully done. I think all these things, um, especially things that we see from the tropics, these imports that come in from that sort of Indonesian region there, they tend to have parasite loads that that you know we're sort of at first shocked by, but then you know we can treat and deal with bloods. One blood that I had um, as an import some time ago had um, a type of lungworm that was sort of interesting. They, um, the vets found it interesting anyway, the guy that I use for all of my stuff. And uh, I think that that's been a worm that's been identified in some of the boa ones in the past too. So I think that's kind of interesting to see if we have some sort of a, of a respiratory effect that goes on with uh, the bloods and, and some of these other tropical things from some particular parasite. But Panicure, flagell, all that kind of stuff. Don't touch them. Keep them wet, and then hopefully, you know, in a month, try to feed them, and uh, and hope for the best, I guess. Awesome. So I'm curious, how typically, when you're getting in, um, you know, wild caught animal, what's the turnaround time till you can even attempt to try to breed it? Um, mm. Yeah, sometimes never. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they, you know, they just sometimes, sometimes these, the wild cots, especially 
older ones, bigger ones, they just never really adjust. I, I, I get the feeling sometimes that some of them, you know, sort of just survive when they're brought into captivity, but they're not really doing anything like that. If, on the other hand, you know, you've got some that come in and they seem to acclimate just fine, um, but sometimes it's tricky because just their their biology is not really conducive to breeding in North America, you know. So it's like trickier mm-hmm. to find the cues or the right environmental timing or the right way to um, cycle them because, you know, the cycling method that I use is 99% captive-bred animals. When you put a wild one in that, it's it's a different ball game and you may not be quite as successful. You might have to do more trickery, more right. water, more, you know, that kind of stuff. So Gotcha. Um, okay. I've bred I've bred wild cots in their second year in captivity, and that that seems to oh, be really? as good as I can do, though. Yeah, on wow. a really good one. Best case scenario, wild caught. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, you know, to get them acclimated in that quickly, you know. I mean, I think to me, you know, we were talking about scrubs a minute ago, but I think mm-hmm. uh, one of the issues with scrubs is trying to get them acclimated to captivity now they're a little bit more in my experience a little bit more um uh sensitive uh you know um than other pythons uh as far as you know if you walk by their cage they're just going to be like constantly stressed out which oh, yeah. that's that's not a a good mix for trying to uh establish them in captivity enough to breed to the point where they're going to breed but uh, hmm. yeah. The, when I was, I had a an interest in white lip pythons for um, for a while, mm. and they would do that too. You know, you would you'd get these ones, particularly the golds, the, the northerns, and they would um, be very striky at glass. And um, one trick that I did that I really and honestly feel contributed to success with with those projects. Was I? Uh, I took. I was using vision cages at the time. And I took the glass doors and had them tinted at an auto tent place with mirror tint, so that huh. I could see in, but they couldn't see out. You know. That's awesome. That. Yeah, and uh, they quit that. You know, they couldn't see me walking in front of the cage all the time anymore, and they just they settled down, and that's when I started getting good clutches and fertile eggs. So I think that the privacy. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, you know, that wild caught acclimation period that's that's a huge stress that's very shocking to see some big human some big mammal walking across your cave you know in front of your your habitat every single day and then you're confined on top of that so i think that the uh, seclusion really really helps with any of those species the scrubs the white lips any of that that uh that tend to be you know bite first ask questions later that (laughs) right yeah. So you were successful in breeding uh, white lips, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had oh, both, wow. both types. Ah, uh, uh, damn it. That's what I want. <laughs> Owen's uh, favorite is white lips. I love them. <laughs> we're trying. I, I, I have So what's the trick? And I'm, and I'm kind of, well, I'm kind of doing the exact same thing that, that Matt is doing, but not as intricate. He tinted the windows. I had a black throat monitor in that cage for a bit, and it scratched up all the acrylic oh, yeah. glass so you can't see it because it's frosted now and that's yeah. where we put the white lips <laughs> so i that's did a good choice version of yeah. that <laughs> so yeah 
Yes. Your, what is the trick? What yeah. is your? Um, how did you get? I, honestly, I think just acclimation. I think acclimation and time. And are yours captive bred? That that you guys are trying. That, that yes, that one's. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that that helps tremendously. Um. So that should be one good step, and then. You know, just like anything else, the um, I, I tended to cycle the southerns towards the lower end of the rack, so they were cooler. They got a little bit cooler on the bottom, and then the golds I would cycle near the top. And this was an arboreal, um, what is it, freedom breeder rack that uh, that I had for various other arboreal things. But I used it okay. for uh, for the wide lips just fine, and then the vision cages um, once they were you know, acclimated and all that stuff and yeah, they they weren't too bad. They weren't they weren't bad at all. The 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 tricky part was hatching the eggs. I had a couple of clutches fail just from not doing the right things or um maybe keeping them too humid or whatever. And uh but then once I figured out that I was incubating um same thing, you know, like I said before at eighty eight degrees, just straight around, uh and you want to keep the, the water off of those eggs though. They're they're sensitive like that. So, okay. um, you know what I would do is I made a the lid for my um, sweater boxes had kind of an angle to it that I use for egg incubation. So I just let it angle naturally, so all the condensation would run one um, one side. So once that oh, happened, okay. you know, drip down the side, no big deal. But a flat top tub. And the, if anything falls on them, you can have some problems with that. They feed great. Once you get the hatchlings out, they feed great. They're bitey as hell. I mean, as you <laughs> could maybe imagine, but uh-huh. it's not a bad bite. They're small. You know, the the, the northerns in particular don't have uh, a bad bite as a hatchling there. And uh, the the good thing is, is they uh, the captive bred ones that that I've kept and worked with calm down as easily as a carpet python. Really? So, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we've had, especially our southerns, they, uh, you could pull them out and sit on the floor and they'd sit in your lap and just kind of chill. Um, so that's that's good, too, because that takes some of the stress out of out of mm-hmm. uh, second generations when you can breed captive bred animals. What, that's a huge benefit. Right. Absolutely. Hmm. It awesome. is. I mean... <laughs> The, the difference the difference between my captive born and bred gold face white lip and my wild caught gold face white lip is open the cage, scoop it up, clean it, versus wait for it to launch itself out of the cage and then clean it while it's on the ground trying to figure out what to do next. So Yeah. 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 It's a big difference. Big difference. <laughs> big difference. Yeah, they uh they send they to they you know, they just tend to be so responsive to stuff. That's why I like them though. You know the white mm-hmm. they really they really have a lot going on. They have that kind of like what I was describing with the scrubs and that watchful eye. You know they're yeah. attention to what's going on. You can't really it's really hard to sneak in their cage and, and grab something or change something because they're so alert <laughs> to everything that happens around them. And uh, yeah, I think that's a cool quality. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the. Um, they, the adults can tag you really good, though. They have a mm-hmm. yes, they have <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. I don't know if you I will agree. That. 
Yeah. I have. <laughs> yeah. And they can also do a weird wraparound bite where you hold them, and it yeah. looks like they're going to flail, and then they end up biting you on, like, the shoulder or the back, and you're like, what the hell just happened? By yep. the time you turn your head, they're now biting your other shoulder or back from the other side, and it's just like, it's better just to put it down at that point and just figure out what the hell's going on later. So. Yeah. Yeah, the um, the first clutch of, of uh, southern white lips that I ever got, I went in kind of, I was so excited, I was a mm-hmm. little bit careless, I guess, about it. So I opened the, you know, I can see in the vision cage that she's laid the eggs in the nest box, and it looks great. So I just want to get it, I want to sneak open the lid and get a picture while she's sitting on them, you know. And as soon as I pop open the lid and I'm kind of looking in there, she pops me right in the face. And uh, oh, that, was, that was my lesson. Ouch. That was my lesson, yeah, right. And uh, so that was that was my distrust for white lips after that, but total respect at the same time. They're such they're yeah. impressive animals. The problem is I would do the same thing. I'd be, like, too excited to open the door. Be like, oh, my God, I got eggs. It's right yeah. in the face. That, 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 I, I see that happening. Even after now that you've warned me. It's still yeah, there you go. So. Yeah. Well, maybe it's how you know. Maybe it's how white lip breeders earn their stripes. I don't know. You just have to get bit in the face once or twice. You gotta get bit yeah. right in the head. Yeah. Right yeah. in the head. That's how yeah. they know it was for real. Yeah. Uh huh. That's that's how we know your passion's not fake. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because if you're still gonna uh, attempt to breed them or keep them after that, then yeah, you dig those so, snakes. So someone... <laughs> So if someone's selling captive white lips, captive born and bred white lips, and his face isn't mangled, we should <laughs> automatically assume that he's lying. So, you know, that was right there. That's yeah, what we learned now. Well, that was a lesson learned. You know, after that, <laughs> I contained my excitement more. And, yeah, you definitely, you know, you want to have maybe somebody else around and, and a good towel or a good heavy burlap bag or something to put that they just I mean they just explode I've actually had um, one of the northern white lip females destroy her entire clutch by striking at me while trying to get them just you know she constricted them and, and busted them and popped eggs and just oh, destroyed God. the whole clutch yeah so yeah. That, was, that was a that was an adventure too but um you know, that's when you just go maternal next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're done. Yeah. done. You take them. I'll yeah, you, the you got this. You got this. Yeah. Uh, right ahead. Did you, did you ever attempt that with them or no? Just... Oh, yeah. Yeah. They did, <laughs> oh, they did, did great like that. Yeah. Really? They did fine. Okay. Um, they oh. actually, they probably did better than I did with, with artificial incubation. And, and, you know, it seems like the times that I've done maternal incubation, I tend to get the hatchlings are a little bit later. You know, they don't hatch at the same kind of uh, time period as the artificial clutches do, but they tend to be a little more robust. They're, yes. they're bigger. They're, you know, they tend, they tend to strike a little more, which is nice for feeding trials. And same thing with jungle carpets, too. Some of my, my most, like, I guess, vigorous and uh, healthy babies were from the maternal clutches. It's, I think there's temperature cycling going on that we're not aware of yet or, or aren't really able to maybe duplicate in the incubator, you know, with daytime highs and nighttime lows and all that stuff. 
Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say, um, I think um, when the Nick and Justin did the complete carpet book, they um, they did a couple of clutches maternal incubated, and they showed that some days that temperature, some at some point during the day, the temperature went into the 90s, you know, yeah. and and it was a, it was a huge fluctuation in temperatures. Uh, while the outside ambient temperature pretty much stayed the same. So I don't know. I wonder, uh, I'm with you. I wonder if that um, makes it, makes the snake, um, would you say stronger or not as uh, sensitive to temperature swings? Um, Yeah, I think, you know, you you know, in the embryo stage when you have these big temperature swings or not big, but you know, when we say incubated 89 degrees or 90 degrees or whatever, we're basing that on the average on the average temperature that we that we calculate a female on a clutch of eggs at. Uh, but that's not what's happening on the hourly basis. You know, mm-hmm. like like you said, we see spikes during the day, we see drops at night. And there's a lot of research, you know, that, that kind of supports that where they've they've looked at females incubating eggs. Um, I think it just has it, it delivers a better uptake of nutrients from the egg to the embryo to the baby developing. I think that it, uh, you know, being kind of stuck together in that pile is just sort of the way that they evolve to hatch. You know, what we do with bring them into an incubator is really sort of the the artificial forcing of the hatch. So mm-hmm. while we have more control, I think sometimes, you know, like you just have a, a, a bit of a, softer baby out of that. Right. (laughs) I agree. Okay. Awesome. That's good stuff. Cool. So next question is, Mm -hmm. Matt, if you could go herping anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Hmm. It would probably be Madagascar. You know, just to kind of bounce yeah. off. Yeah, just uh, I, I'd want to herp for every species that I could possibly catch or find. <laughs> I, I don't. Okay. I want to see. You know, and not just that. I just want to. I'd love to see the the landscape, the vegetation, the uh, the geology of the area. Just really been fascinated by by that country for a long time. So I really want to visit Madagascar and try to to check it out. I'd love to. You know, as as much as we see them in captivity, I'd still think it'd be just awesome to find like a wild Dumeril's boa. You know, I think that'd be cool. So. Oh yeah. Um, Tanzania, cool. not to mention all the tortoises and chameleons and and everything else. I just think it'd be the best trip for variety, which is what I'd be interested in seeing. Um, secondly, I, you know, would be probably. Indonesia, for the same reasons, just endless uh, variety and uh, huge variation in forests and ecosystems and geology and all that other cool stuff. Awesome. So, Matt, if someone wanted to get in touch with you to check out your collection or uh, purchase a baby or, you know, pick your mind, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, so Facebook is, is really the way that I'm – I'm running now. We we had a website for a while, but uh, it's just too much uh, extra stuff to, to do, and it seems to be working best to use social media so they can find us on Facebook. And um, 
contact me there, and that's the best way. Cool. All right. And that last question is, will you be at Tinley Park? Of course. That's coming up soon. Oh, there we go. Yeah, awesome. we're, we're always at Tinley Park. We love going. We're going to um, – we're bringing a lot of bloods, um, but we're also bringing a lot of, like, holdbacks from previous years to, to for people to see how they've turned out, you know, so that we can kind of watch the development. We're going to bring some, you know, some bigger – it, it's really hard to bring a big blood, but so we're kind of limited to like you know two year olds and and below. But we're gonna try to bring a nice sampling of uh, projects we're working on and things we produced and and that stuff. So yeah, we'll be there. Awesome. We'll have to have a beer. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 For sure. Cool. All right. Well. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Matt, for coming on the show and chatting with us and. Uh, Pleasure. Spending a couple hours and uh you know, it was awesome. Learned a lot. Thanks. Well go ahead. Great, yeah. Um I appreciate the opportunity. Okay. All right, we'll see you in Tinley Park. <laughs> okay. Take care you guys. All right. All right. Have a good All one. See ya. Awesome. That'll be cool. It's like we'll be hanging out with Matt the Borneo guy and Matt the Blood guy. <laughs> Oh my God! You did that. All right. Um, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I might bring a notebook and pick, pick. You know, Matt the, wait, which Matt is our Matt? Which Matt's the new Matt? Which ones are Borneos? Um, yeah, I'll I forgot. You, you're not. You're not a short tail guy, right? so know, you don't understand. I know okay. there's several people that are pissed off by that comment right now. Right. So anyway, I'm. <laughs> I'm going to pick, pick Mac Turner's mind about White Lips uh, at Tinley Park, definitely. And, you know, I have the whole car ride to, you know, annoy Matt Minnesota, so who's also bringing his wife to Tinley Park, who, you know, I, I don't think she's properly prepared for the bullshit that we're going to be ripping out in the car. But, I've given her five Bigfoot uh, articles to read up on. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she will be properly well, we prepared. I, no, 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 no. You cannot just troll the shit out of you. Matt, no, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, Matt told me she was on my side. Can't start taking people. Because Matt's going to troll the shit out of me just to have fun. Yeah. So is she. We're I, all going to do it. I'm tired of you people. <laughs> Getting a new ride to Tinland. Uh,. I'm going to get Rob Stone to call me on the phone and he's going to troll you as well. <laughs> now he might believe he might be with you. <laughs> he, he probably is being in Colorado. He probably sees the people wandering around looking for Bigfoot in his backyard. <laughs> oh man. Oh, that's awesome. I know how much you love him. Stop it. That's like four shows in a row. Now we've mentioned Bigfoot. This is really getting annoying. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh man. Okay. Uh let's see. Next week uh we're talking retics. Um we're talking uh with uh Josh Ortiz. Uh some of you may know Josh um from uh Nerd, uh but uh we're going to pick his brain 
all about what he's doing uh, with Rekix and uh, some of the projects that he's working on and um, tons of cool stuff. So if you're into Retix, cool. it should be an awesome show uh, for sure. Uh, let's see. Let me pull up my notes here. After that, we probably have, what, one more show in September? Or is that it? How many uh, yeah. are there in September? Yeah, we, no, got we, got, uh, we got Josh, and then we're going to be followed up by uh, Matt Minnetola. Oh, there you go. You rest of September. Then we move into October, which um, we're probably going to have to get going on the calendar thing, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we should do that. <laughs> if you're counting on me to do that right at this current moment, um, well, 2017 is going to be. Um... I figure, <laughs> uh, you know, I figure we'll get the calendar rolling, you know, sometime next week. We'll do the announcements and start getting that crap moving. This way, people yes. can actually get calendars in like December instead of like March. March. <laughs> oh, March. We say this every year, right? And every I, year. I know. Fail. <laughs> we fail miserably. Every but you still year. get a nice calendar. I mean, you know. But we still, put we still get a freaking calendar. Yeah. People. It should be good this year okay. because um, we have a different um, uh, supplier. So hopefully they're able to turn it around in a. In a yeah, well, the first year we had them. It was horrible. The turnaround time was like crazy. Um, and then that is the problem: is getting it done in enough time to get it submitted, to get the fuckers printed, to get them back to us, to send them where they got to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes it very difficult. Um, yeah. But uh, the the people that we used last year um, were much quicker. Uh, so. Hopefully we won't, I guess we won't we won't open the contest as long. I think we did it for a month on the last one, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one, a little one day, long. One day we will have calendars to bring with us to Tinley Park. One day, <laughs> twelfth season, we'll finally figure the freak out. So, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. After that, we're going to be doing um, uh, the uh, five year anniversary show. So. Oh my God! Yep, five five yeah, years. I'm, I may take that Wednesday off of work because I may have to get hammered for that show. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to do some drinking contest. Yeah, we got some yeah. surprises planned, and uh, all I don't want to. And and I I may have let slip to a certain someone that the that the show's coming up, so you know. Oh. God only knows what he's going to do. So. Oh, yeah. You know, I was thinking mm-hmm. we should get that certain mm-hmm. someone to uh, mm-hmm. to come on to the holiday show. Um, oh, God. <laughs> what, for like an extended time? Yeah. He should no. be like Santa Claus. <laughs> he's going to be no. here for Claus. No, 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 no. Because he comes uh, on for five minutes listen, and Jim, total havoc on I'm going to mute. And then oh, runs oh, off. Wait. No. <laughs> This is how it's going to work. See, this is how I have control. Hold on. I'm just going to mute you for one second, Owen. Uh, Jim from Morgantown, if you're out there right now, Owen is muted, and he can't talk. He's probably screaming ungodly into his phone right now. But uh, if you were interested in doing what I just said, please contact me, and we'll make that happen. 
Unmuted. You goddamn know I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. You can probably hear me. I did. All the way from there. I, I hate that you have that freaking... That's enough. Burst a goddamn blood vessel. Uh, that would be cool. Anyway. Uh, I would not, but... What we uh, right. what we failed what we failed to mention uh, was the uh, carpet fest this past weekend. Yes, yes. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the if you got disturbing things. Came no, out I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if you caught wind of uh, our boy. Well, did you Mr. did you see the video where it's like, would you like to send a message to Eric and Owen? He goes, and he's like, he dead looks at the camera. I have a lot of things I want to say to Eric and Owen, but. None they want to hear. I'm like, what the hell did we do? It's like, I'm like, uh, planned a trip to Australia and then backed out. <laughs> oh, well, that was. Yeah, that was a good one, man. You're um, going. I mean, I don't know why you're up. My, you're going. So, but anyway, yeah, Nick got a dress and makeup and stockings. And gloves and a purse, and apparently was given dollars to rub his chest all over people's faces. The Northwest Carpet Fest is or, or, it just very weird. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but they have a lot of fun, so I'm never going to knock them for it. it. And they do make a good amount of money, and more power to them. I really am afraid for what Nick has to do next year. Because I don't know where you go from this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It seems like so. I I never would have thought in a million years that 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 would have happened. You know? (laughs) I mean, it always seems like it's some kind of physical thing, and it's like... Yeah, who's out here with that? (laughs) Well, (laughs) clearly Nick... All right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty it's kinda awesome. We need a we need a Nick over here on the East Coast, you know what I mean? Somebody Nick that's here. uh Yeah, I know, but we need somebody that's willing to uh to, him. I'm, to do whatever. I didn't know, you know? we were su- I didn't know we were supposed to abuse him. So <laughs> You know. Well, we don't want Nick to do it because Nick is the East Coast, uh, West Coast guy. We need an East Coast guy so, to. Uh, so we gotta find yeah. someone to beat up and abuse here. Yeah, somebody that's uh, uh, willing to say, mm-hmm. "Yeah, I'll do that." Fuck it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it can't be me because I don't want to do it. So <laughs> it's gotta be, <laughs> gotta be somebody else. I'm Somebody gonna nominate else. other buddy. I'm gonna nominate other buddy for this kind of stuff just because he's my go-to for this kind of stuff. Mm. So that's mm. a good choice. That is an Thank excellent you. choice, Owen. Yeah, yeah, he I'm fits the bill quite and, well, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. Challenge so accepted. We can figure something. There we go. <laughs> so I'm just racking it up the text messages that I will be receiving tomorrow. So yes. you know that's. I'm just going to enjoy all this when I'm sitting at my desk. So, you know how yeah. we get them to do it? We how? just tell them that we're going to give them a chondro. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> He'll do it. That, that, that'll work, yeah. That will, yeah. That'll work. Yeah. Listen, yeah. we want you to do this stupid thing like Jackass the movie. But you get but a chondro. You get a chondro. That's it. 
and it'll be like, okay. Yeah, he, he, he'd be conflicted for a second, and then he'd be like, all right. Yeah. So, you know, that, yeah. Yep. Uh, so all right, there start we go. thinking of stuff to make him do. Yeah, there we go. That's right. Okay, we got it. We got a couple months. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can go over and check out the uh, Northwest uh, Facebook group page to see. I think I shared some of the stuff over on the Morelia Python Radio page as well. But uh, good times. How sure. was tossing up the video of Nick and Drag <laughs> everywhere? It was literally on everything that Howard was a member of, whether it be <laughs> Nick related or not. Right. So, yeah, it was that's kind of if you haven't seen that yet, just peruse one of the Morelia based places and you'll find it. And you can all enjoy. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Um okay. So uh let's uh let's wrap it up and get out. So next week we got retick talk. Um there was some kind of uh email blast from US Arc uh tonight. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get a chance to read it yet. But it looks like some kind of uh, some kind of laws are getting trying to be pushed. Uh, so I'll check that out and post it over on the Facebook page. Uh, but if you're not a member, you should definitely go and sign up. Um, you know, at least get on their email list. That way, when there is these uh, you know laws that are trying to get passed without people knowing, at least you are aware of it. And you can do something mm-hmm. about it. Uh, at least try to do something about it. Uh, so, yeah, usarc.org. Go over, check it out, be a member. Uh, give them some support. Um, yeah, can't say much more than that. Uh, <clears throat> Morelia Python Radio. Our website is moreliapythonradio.com. We have a Facebook page as well that you can check out, Morelia Python Radio. We're on Twitter. Um for the podcast itself, uh, you can check it out on iTunes or whatever podcast app you happen to use. It's under Murray Python Radio. Um, and uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, email is info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, share the shows out there uh, if you uh, – if you liked it and you thought it was cool, uh, share it around. Uh, let uh, let other people know uh, about what's going on uh, with uh, with the show. The guests come on; they dedicate their time. Uh, I think it's awesome that uh, you know people share it around and give those guys some guys and girls some exposure um, about you know projects mm-hmm. that they're working on or whatever. You know, um, it's, uh, that's how it works. So uh, by all means help 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 us out as far as myself eb morelia um i i am way out of the loop uh as far as you know everything goes uh probably by the end of september i'll be back in the swing of things uh hopefully i'll have the collection settled in and i'll get some pictures up of what i'm going to be taking to tinley park because we will be out at tinley park um so yeah. if you're going to be in the area, uh, I'll be sure to uh, to post up some of the interesting stuff that uh, I'm going to be bringing out. Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, to meeting people and, uh, you know, hanging out with people and, you know, having beers with people, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, so 
if you want to follow me, um, you know, like I said, ebmorelia.com. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all under EB Morelia. If you want to get in touch with me, um, I know people message me on Facebook under EB Morelia, but really the best way is uh, Eric at ebmorelia.com. If you're going to message me on Facebook, uh, I would go under and message me directly, Eric Burke. Um, Because I don't know about you, Owen, but I find it difficult sometimes. I don't really get the notice. Do you? Like a message uh, for Rogue what? Reptiles? Like on your Facebook page? I, I do, but sometimes it gets kind of lost in the shuffle. It just kind of says, like, you have one new notification for Rogue. And then you click on it, and it's like, you have, like, a message that's been here for two hours. And it's like, oh. And yeah. It's like, your response time is two and a half hours. I'm like, that's not true. If you just told me it was there, I would have responded sooner. But, yeah. So. Yeah, the other thing that happens. Yeah, the other thing that happens, and I apologize if you're one of these people that fell into this group, but uh, it seems that uh, Facebook sort of, um, they sort of filter your messages. And if you don't go every yeah. once in a while over to, um, you got you got to go to the setting and it's it's really, it's not that obvious, but you got to go to like mm. your profile and then you click over and you look at messages. And when it click into the messages, you see these messages that were sent to you, but you don't know they don't pop up in your regular, you know, like Facebook Messenger. Um, they sort of filter them, and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not, because, you know, especially with the show, sometimes people will be, can I get in the chat? Can I, you know, ask this question, ask that question, and we don't get it. That's why I think that the, you know, if if you're not a friend of mine or Owen's, um, mm-hmm. like on Facebook, probably the best way would be to, uh, you know, to actually Facebook Messenger for Morelia Python Radio works pretty good, probably because we're both watching it. Um, so either one of us can answer it. Um, but I don't know. For some reason, EB Morelia, I have trouble with. So for my long rant, uh, if you want to get in talk, contact with me, uh, eric at ebmorelia.com or uh, just message me right directly on Facebook under Eric Burke. That's all I got. Awesome. So what I got is you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. You can also look up rogue reptiles on Facebook.com. We have a few babies up for sale, caramels, caramel jags. Uh, we don't have the high cons and high con jags up yet because we're still getting food into those guys. And that's pretty much all we're going to have until after Tinley Park. Um, so we're not really going to be posting up anybody else. Um, the next show I have is the October Tinley Park. Uh, there are no other shows, and I won't be at the Hamburg Reptile Show because I'll be in Chicago, and I have not yet perfected being in two places at once. So, sorry. Um, Damn it. What else we got? <laughs> I know, right? I'm working. I can only work so hard. So um, that's all I got, and that's all we got. Uh, so what we'll say is we're going to catch everybody back here next week for some more Morelia Python radio. Good night.